Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 998. To begin today's show, Jay Jaffe welcomes Tyler Kepner back to the program, baseball writer at the New York Times and author of the new book, The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series. Tyler's just in time for the 118th edition of the Fall Classic, and he and Jay talk about what inspired the book and the hundreds of interviews that went into it. We hear about picking series MVPs from before they were awarded in 1955, Jay's fond memories of the 1988 series, players getting nervous and clutch moments, and how not fun it can be to cover Yankee eliminations. Jay and Tyler also discuss what they are excited about for the upcoming series between the Astros and Phillies, and how Tyler has been preparing for this book his whole life. One of those moments happened when I was when I was 10, and it was the Royals-Cardinals World Series, and they'd had that incredible game on the Saturday night where Kansas City comes back and, and wins it and forces a Game 7. And then, of course, Game 7 was a total blowout. I mean, it was over early. It was 11 nothing, and right. it was a school night, and my parents didn't understand why I just had to stay up and watch the end of the game. It was already decided, but I just I had to do it. I mean, I was 10. I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to watch the rest of the World Series. I got to see who makes the last out. I got to see how they celebrate. I got to see the interviews. I got to see just the end of the movie, you know? Right. So at that point, I, I kind of, I haven't missed a pitch of the World Series for the most part since, probably since I first started watching it in 82. So after that, David Laurelis speaks to Justin Henry Malloy, a Braves prospect who is currently playing for the Scottsdale Scorpions in the Arizona Fall League. Justin gives us insight into what daily life is like in the Fall League and how he ended up there after a strong 2022 campaign that started in A-ball at a different position. Justin tells us about his adventures in battling the Arizona Sun while playing the outfield and how he strives for consistency as a hitter while aiming to command the zone. We also hear about teammates like Cade Bunnell, Cal Conley, Heston Kierstad, and Vaughn Grissom, and how lucky Justin feels to get to join all the great players in the Fall League. You know, obviously there's a lot more work to be done, but I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, like it took a lot of work to get out here and, and everyone out here is an elite caliber type of player. So, you know, just being able to be out here and to be able to watch other guys and other organizations go about their business, it's pretty special and you're able to learn and bounce ideas off each other and you know, it's kind of cool just, you know, thinking that like, hey, like I'm among some of the best of the best and, and that's a credit to them. And it's also a credit to myself. So I'm happy where I am. And, and it's just humbling to be out here. Seriously. But before we get to these excellent segments, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to head on over and peruse the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only is it the best place for you to pick up your Fangraphs merch, but you can also get an ad free membership. Good for yourself or for a friend. It is the best way to not only browse the site, but to support the site helping us to do everything we do. If you enjoy the leaderboards or the projections or the articles and research or even this podcast, it is thanks to the support of our members. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. Hi, this is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. The World Series starts on Friday night. The matchup between the Houston Astros and Philadelphia Phillies will be the 118th time the Fall Classic has been played. With more than a century worth of history and lore, the World Series remains an inviting topic for writers, and no shortage of books has been written on the subject. One that's hot off the presses and that has caught my eye is The Grandest Stage, A History of the World Series by Tyler Kepner, the national baseball writer for the New York Times and the author of a 2019 bestseller, K, A History of Baseball in Ten Pitches, which was one of my favorite baseball books for that year or any recent year in memory. 
Tyler has covered every World Series game for the past two decades, and his history with the Fall Classic goes back to 1983 when he was eight years old attending Game 4 with his hometown Phillies against the Orioles at Veterans Stadium. I'm just a few years older than Tyler, so we share a frame of reference, though I can't claim to have the immediate recall and eye for detail that he does, because nobody in our industry beats Tyler at that. <laughs> anyway, I'm excited to talk to him about this book and this matchup between the Astros and the Phillies. So welcome to the show, Tyler. Thanks a lot for having me, Jay. I appreciate that intro. Very nice. All right. Very good. Yeah, I, I know I've told you this, and I probably tell you this every time I see you, but K, The History of Baseball in 10 Pitches, is just one of my favorite books. It's one of those ones that I kept carrying around even after I finished it because I wanted to thumb through it again and find some favorite parts of it. So uh, I've recommended it to I don't know how many people. Oh, wow. Well, thank you very much for saying that. that uh, as you know, you can never get tired of uh, people <laughs> saying that they like your book. So yours, yeah. was, uh, yours was great, too. It's an essential reference uh, for me. Oh, that's cool. It's always good to know, you know, that you've, that you've done something that meant, that means something to somebody that they want to share with somebody else. And so, yeah, I, I know what that means. And yeah, I, it's, a, it's great that the feeling's mutual. So cool. Anyway, so let's talk about the genesis of this book here. There have been so many books about the World Series from overviews uh, of the entire history to specific matchups uh, devoted to a single series or books about dynasties. What made you want to join the fray? Well, I thought that I could bring a unique perspective on it and that that would be kind of challenging because there have been so many perspectives on, on this event. But I really I really didn't want to make it a, a chronology. You know, I didn't want to make it like a encyclopedic look at 1903 to now. I wanted to sort of explore different themes that could give a, a, a full scope of the series, but also, you know, in, in a way where you know, you don't quite know when 1975 is going to pop up or when you might run into uh -huh. 1934 or something, you know, unexpectedly. The, the sort of universal themes that kind of transcend the eras. Well, that's cool. I like that. And, and you know, just thumbing around and, and reading reading the first couple chapters and, and, and thumbing through a lot of the rest of the book here, I really got that feeling that, you know, that you were really enjoying something, you know, that wasn't a nonlinear, I mean, that wasn't a linear narrative, you know, that just sort of bounced from, from story to story and topic to topic, like two people talking baseball, you know, and I think that's, it's really neat the way you're you're able to pull it off seemingly without effort, just one, you know, one idea flowing into the next. And I thought that was really cool. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I think that's, that's one, that's one thing that helps me in, in a, in, in a narrative like this is uh, I just kind of have, I don't know why, but the way my baseball brain sort of works, like I can just sort of draw connections from one person or one player or team to another. It's just the kind of stuff I retain. I don't know why, but um, it sticks in there. And, and, and that, that helps in a situation like, you know, in a book like this, where you have, you know, the challenge sometimes of trying to connect, you know, 2005 to, to 1917 or something like, right. and, and you just find ways to, to string it up together and it doesn't seem forced, hopefully. Right. Yeah. Well, so what you have here, as you say in the introduction, it's not the history of the World Series, but a history. And you occasionally reach back to, to refer to series with Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig and Willie Mays and you know, what I'll call the, the sepia-toned legends. Yes. The heart of the book is the World Series of our lifetimes. And the perspective you've gained from watching those those series and and talking to the men who played it, you relate conversations with guys like you know greats like Mike Schmidt, or Oral Hershiser, Madison Bumgarner, and dozens of other players. I have to ask, how many interviews did you do for this book? 
I did more for the pitching book because I didn't count these. I counted those. But it was, I mean, <laughs> it was probably 200 or somewhere wow. close Holy to God. that. Oh, I mean, man. if I if I'm counting, yeah, the pitching book I went over 300. That was wild. But right. this one was probably a little less than that because I tried to be a little more, you know, focused in on on certain targets. But I, you know, I mean, when you do this job, you've, I've been asking people about the World Series forever. It's just a natural natural thing to ask about. Even going back to my days when I was a teenager, writing a little baseball magazine in Philly, you know, asking asking Rich Gedman what he was uh, playing for the Cardinals at the end of his career, you know, about that, you know, the, the wild pitch for Bob Stanley in '86. You know, so like right. I mean, like my, when I was seventeen or so, I was I was doing some stuff that would help me thirty years later. Um, yeah, I'm gonna yeah. get to that here because I, you know, I've learned to appreciate the way you work and had conversations with you informally about this stuff here. Before I get there, though, was, was there was there much stuff uh, that's in the book that you'd gotten from your previous conversations, like from you know talking to pitchers about various pitches and things like that for the last book? You mean like stuff that I gathered? From yeah, had the you last had book? like had you is this like had you already like had these conversations with people and and just felt like a natural like oh there's this you know when I was talking to I'm blanking on a name here somebody about the slider or or, or whatever that you'd actually already tread that ground. Yeah, there was there were some of those and, uh-huh. and there were some things I tried not to repeat and right. maybe that was silly because you know it's it's it might be a different readership but i, I didn't i didn't really want to like i went really deep with brad lidge for example the first book about uh-huh. uh the slider that that finished off the 08 world series and so i didn't really have much on the 08 world series this time because i felt like i uh, said everything i wanted in the last one it. but you know got sometimes it. sometimes it was unavoidable mike montgomery throwing the last pitch of the of the cubs world series mm-hmm. um you know I, I i revisit some of that but I tried mostly to make it distinct and different from uh, from K. Yeah. Okay. So getting to what I was teasing here before here, but would I be correct in saying that it feels like you've been putting this book together since you were eight, or if not eight, then maybe what sixteen, and doing your your baseball zine here, like you've, you've been finding trying to find spots for these various stories and nuggets of information that you've been collecting, you know, all of your baseball watching life. Right. Right. And, and I think I really. Try to be self-aware, and I feel like one of those moments happened when I was when I was ten, and it was the Royals Cardinals World Series, and they'd had that incredible game on the Saturday night where Kansas City comes back and and wins it and forces a game seven, and then of course game seven was a total blowout. I mean, it was over early, it was eleven nothing, right. and it was a school night, and my parents didn't understand why I just had to stay up and watch the end of the game. It was already decided. But I just, I had to do it. I mean, I was 10. I'm like, there's no way I'm not going to watch the rest of the World Series. I got to see who makes the last out. I got to see how they celebrate. I got to see the interviews. I got to see just the end of the movie, you know? Right. So at that point, I, I kind of, I haven't missed a pitch of the World Series for the most part since, probably since I first started watching it in 82. So yeah, I think it was just sort of a natural to kind of follow that that passion. And and we all have a passion for it because, you know, we all, it's what it's what the whole season comes down to. But I don't know. I just feel like I always, I always pay real close attention to the things that happen and, and think about them a lot after the fact. Yeah. Okay. So the book is structured here. You've, you've basically, you've got kind of seven separate essays here. Essay may be a little bit of a stretch in, in a couple of these, but you've got seven seven chapters. Each one is devoted to a game of the World Series and has a has a guiding topic. You've got, and I'm just going to list these here for, for the reader to get a flavor of it. Game one, the whole world knows how bad I am handling the pressure of the World Series. Game two, a wiffle ball plunking the sidebar stories to the greatest moments in World Series history. Game three, a beetle in the snow, unlikely heroes of the World Series. Game four, if I can't explain this, it's wrong, managing in the World Series. Game five, we love tournaments. 
the challenge of building a World Series winner. Game 6, it wasn't your fault, kid, the other side of World Series glory. And Game 7, potato chips and a glass of champagne, which I was delighted to learn comes from a Vince Scully quotation. <laughs> it's the ultimate World Series lists. And the first of your list there is is three great quotations from, from Scully about the World Series, including one that explains how he became a Giants fan and one that explains the, the origin of that phrase, a potato chips and a glass of champagne. I liked, you know, I like the way this is this is organized. It, it comes as a surprise because I did expect I did go into this expecting something that was a little bit more chronological. And here already by chapter two, you've got sidebars to like these great moments. Like we all know about the called shot, you know, Babe Ruth calling a shot, but you're you're giving us some some detail about Charlie Root or Hal Smith's home run, the most important, home, the more important home run in some ways than Bill Mazeroski's home run in the uh, in the eighth inning of uh, the seventh game of the 1960 World Series. And I thought that was, that was neat. And uh, that li- your, your chapter seven, your, your lists, I mean, it's, that could be a, that could be a book unto itself <laughs> if you expanded some of those. Some of the lists here, I, I just jotted this down here for my notes, but he's got one here. Tyler's got one for, he's got his all World Series teams, a non-Yankees version and a Yankees version, because if you just do a, do one of them, you're going to end up with so many Yankees, you're kind of defeating the purpose. Right. <laughs> I liked it that you had uh, Babe Ruth the pitcher. On the non-Yankees team, because of, uh, you know, that's, that's certainly, uh, how he became famous, uh, uh, first of all, as a Red Sox pitcher helping them win two World Series. And, uh, and then another one I, I, I admire your devotion to the task was, 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 uh, figuring out the MVPs from the 50-something World Series before they started giving the car away in, in 1955 with Johnny Padres. You've got right. every single one and you make the case for, for each of these guys who should have won. That's, that, that seems like a monumental undertaking. I mean, I know, like, you just, you know, you're well versed enough in the, in the, uh, in the topic to, you know, that it doesn't take too much effort. But at the same time, that's a commitment to the bit when you're doing it 50 times. And you have <laughs> to do you. it, you have to do it in a limited amount of space because, you know, it could, it could swallow up the book itself here. <laughs> right. Yeah. I thought that was fun because, you know, I, it's, there's really no reason why we start with a World Series MVP at 55. That was just when some ad guys, you know, started to think it would be a good idea. So I like the idea of, you know, putting a face to each World Series. You know, you think a, it just gives you a little thumbnail as to what happened. So, yeah, to be able to to go through and say, you know, this was the Jack Coombs World Series or this was the Irish Musel or, or Stan Kovaleski or whatever. I mean, I, I don't know. It's just it's just kind of fun. Uh, and, and, uh, and I wish that there was some mechanism where we could associate one player with each of those World Series because there's no good reason why the MVP just happened to start right. in 55. Right. Yeah, that, make, that makes sense. Another one I liked was your, your wish list. You know, one more Koufax start since he lost the only one in nineteen in the World Series in that four game sweep in nineteen sixty six, and one more Willie Mays at bat in nineteen seventy three, which you know quite plausibly could have happened, except uh, Yogi Berra chose to bat Wayne Garrett for the final out, and a few others in there, and then of course you've got at the end, and you you really do save this for the end here, your your top ten countdown of of the best World Series. I was pleased to find the nineteen eighty eight World Series Dodgers upsetting the A's at number seven. That was a pivotal one for me because I was a college freshman at the time and I grew up a Dodger fan. So watching the heroics of Oral Hershiser in that context really meant a lot to me and, and obviously took the world by surprise. Yeah, thanks. Because that, that was that was one, you know, most of them are seven games. I think the rest of them are all seven games. But I wanted to get that in there because there is something, that was a series that was short, but it was still awesome and it was memorable and all the games were interesting. And this 
there was greatness there. You know, like to, to see Hershiser do what he did following what he did in the end of the regular season. I mean, that's just, that's the good stuff, man. I mean, like there's a lot of, I, I'd love, everybody loves an unsung hero story. And I have a chapter about that, but I felt like 88, 88 kept coming up in, yeah. in my research for the book, you know, partly because, you know, most of those people are still living, but there was just so much, so many dramatic elements. Even the game that people forget, game four was a really interesting game. Yeah, because the Dodgers had to win one besides the Hershiser starts and the miracle from Gibson. And to- right. Tommy basically won that one for him. So, it, yeah, I, I'm glad you picked up on that because I thought 88 was a really great series, even though it only went five games. Yeah, you've got a, you've got a little segment on Mickey Hatcher in there as one of the unsung heroes, uh, right? Uh, and uh, yeah, never going to forget his two his two home runs in, in in that series when he'd had only one during the regular season. So that was uh, that that was definitely a favorite of mine. And uh, uh, you didn't you didn't mention it, but you know one of the other interesting facets of that was uh, there were there was a second walk off home run in the series. This was yes. Mark Mark McGuire. So yeah, you got uh, tightly contested games there. Was it three three of them three of the five games decided by one run? Two of them, obviously, in the final in the final at bat, and so yeah, that was a tight series. So, and then I I think I don't think anybody from our lifetime will be too surprised at the two that you close out with on the uh, on the list with uh, nineteen seventy five and 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 uh, nineteen ninety one ninety one series. I mean, we could go on about that one for for half an hour, but the Jack Morris uh, John Smoltz duel in Game Seven, the with all those all those. Games decided in the final at bat and with plays at the plate and all that. Mm-hmm. Just a lot of fun. Yeah, it was just fantastic. And, and and the idea that you had these two teams that finished last, the right. year before, and and we knew we knew the Twins a little bit because they had won with a lot of the same guys in in eighty seven. But the Braves were totally new, a team that had never been to the World Series in Atlanta, in Atlanta, and just you know you got the feeling that you were at the start of something there with them and that even though they lost they were going to hang around for a while and they did and uh, you know the excitement in the stands I think that had a lot to do with it the fact that the home teams won every game and you know just Hall of Famers putting themselves in in that gallery you know with, with Puckett and, and Morris doing their thing so yeah that was that was greatness right there. Yeah, one of the one of the chapters I, I, that I that I was really soaked in was was your first chapter about the handling the pressure. We're in the business of attaching narratives and trying to explain what happened as if there were always clear reasons why you know something did happen in in these short playoff series, not just the World Series, but you know going back to the best of threes and best of fives that are part of the road there. And I was struck by all by the examples you had of like you know Mike Schmidt being great in one World Series and terrible in another. It's like, we're still stuck on the notion that, oh, this clutchness must exist. And some of these guys have it. And some, you know, every, like these Mr. Mr. October, uh, Reggie Jackson or Big Poppy and all that. And that's, those are, you know, foundations that are legend. But there are a lot of greats who had one great World Series and maybe stunk, a, stunk in another one or something like that. And I thought you, you, you told that, that part well and, and uh, poignantly. And you got some good, honest conversations uh, with those guys. Yeah, thanks. I mean, I, you know, I, I sort of realized that when I was going back and reading my own stuff, because sometimes you just, you got a story and you got an angle and, and, and you, you write what supports that angle. And, and, and I did a story in 18 about David Freeze and, and how he, he had had a great playoff with the uh, Dodgers. And he, you know, he ended up having a good World Series that year with the Dodgers. And, and of course, he won the MVP in, in uh, 11. Actually, he won the MVP of the LCS, too. Right. But the fact that he didn't do anything in, in the 13 World Series, you know, I barely even mentioned that because it didn't really didn't really fit the idea that he was Mr. Clutch. But it just sort of shows that, like, 
I don't know that David Fries decided to go into the 13 World Series and say, I, I don't care enough to be the MVP this time. <laughs> you know, it, it's just they pitched him well and it, or he got ran into some bad luck or whatever. Or he, I, I don't know. But like, so it happens. Yeah. And, and some guys have, I think a few guys have track records that really do stand out, you know, like a Kurt Schilling or a Bob Gibson or mm-hmm. something. But, but I don't know where the sample size is that that tells you that that's statistically significant. And I know I say that just because I look at, at Jeter and Pettit, and they basically had right. an, an entire full season in the postseason, and, and their numbers were very much in line with what you'd expect in a regular season. And that's great because it's high level competition. You know, you're not playing the the, the dregs of the uh, of the league. But it is basically like over time that you are who you are. I mean, you know, I look at Verlander now, and he's never won a start in the World Series. Okay, right. but 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 he's been great in the other rounds. So on on measure now, Verlander has a full season in the postseason. And you know what? You look up and he's fifteen eleven with a three five five ERA in two hundred innings. I mean, that's thirty two starts. That's basically maybe the ERA is a bit high, but it's basically who he is. Right. You know, he has a lot of years in his career that are, yeah. you know, 15, 11, 18, and, you know, this and that. I Maybe not quite up to his his usual standards, but it's basically who he is. Pretty, you know, yeah, like, pretty, it's, it's pretty, pretty close. close. You know, he strikes out 10, or, you know, 10 per nine, just like he does in the regular season. And, you know, maybe he gives up a little more home runs, but it's basically the same guy. Yeah. It's, a, it's interesting. You know, I, there's so much focus on, you know, players who have, you know, one shot and they're the hero or the goat or, or whatever. And, you know, those kind of labels tend, tend to stick whether they're deserved or not. I was having a conversation with David Cohn a few weeks ago. This was right, right, right after the end of the, um, the wild card series. And obviously, you know, he's been on both ends of that with, you know, with his postseason career. And he talked about, you know, you know, one of the reasons why, you know, if you're good enough, you, you, you gravitate towards these teams that, they keep giving you the chance, like the Yankees or for, you know, for Verlander now, it's the Astros. Mm. You know, it's like, yeah, you you know, it may not all work out for you in a given year, but you're, you're in the right place. You know, you're going to get another shot at it. And that, yeah, sooner or later, the sample size does get large enough that it's more a representation of, of your true abilities than just the good luck or bad luck that you had going for you that day, along with, you know, whatever you brought to the mound. Yeah, and, and and that's not to that's not to dismiss like when a guy really you know is feeling it and 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 is 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 locked in and and handles it great that all really matters and and that, and that's uh, oh sure that's to be admired but it's just the idea that it doesn't always happen for everybody all the time I mean I you know I talked to David Robertson just the other day after after he you know he came in there to close out a one run game to win the pennant and he he had a strikeout and then he walked a couple guys. And he got in trouble. And so they had to bring in Ranger Suarez. And he was telling me just like, yeah, I just, I got scared because I didn't have my curveball and I was worried about the home run there. And so it was good that they brought in, brought in Suarez because at that moment I just wasn't, he's like, I wasn't confident in my pitching ability. And uh-huh. this is a guy who, who's, you know, who's Houdini. He's gotten out of so many jams. He's got a ring. He's, he's pitched, right. you know, hundreds of games. And I know him. He's, he's not the kind of guy who get, gets phased, but in that moment, he just didn't happen to have his good stuff. And he was worried that if he tried to land his curveball in the zone, that they were going to hit a home run there. So, like, it happens to the best of them. You know, uh, Hamels was the World Series MVP for the Phillies. And then a few years later, he he had a rough start in the division series for Texas. And I asked him about it. And he was like, yeah, you know, you, get, you still get nervous. You still get hyped up. You still get, you know, you, you got to calm those those nerves. And so there's a guy who had already 
been a World Series MVP. He's a veteran at this point. He's still saying that, you know, the nerves can get to you. So I don't know if guys are inherently clutch or not. When they are, it's great. But it, yeah, I'm not saying it's not a thing, but it's it's not something that's always present. Like you're fast or you're not fast. Like right. you always have speed, right? Like yeah. it comes and goes. I think also the other the other thing you know that you're able to elicit these very honest answers from these people and and you know they're they're telling you about the day that they weren't so great and and that's something that I that I found throughout the book is you've got these guys you know some of them just describing some of their low points in their careers and that it takes it takes a skill to get somebody to open up like that and so that's uh, one way in in which this stands out here so really nice job on the book wanted to get your take here as we as we uh, as we close this out here on on what you what we've seen so far through the playoffs and what we can look forward to in the world series what do you think of the new format for uh, the postseason well, I I love the the wild card game because I love the instant knockout feeling of it. Yeah, me um, too. <laughs> yeah, and but I I, I got to admit that even with only one game three this year, that the first round was still pretty exciting to have that kind of instant NCAA tournament sort of feel to it with four games going on throughout the day. You know, you get excited for game one because it's game one and the playoffs are underway, and then. Game two is an elimination game, and game three is an elimination game for both teams. So you have a lot of drama right away. You don't have that travel to, to kind of elongate the series. It's all at a breakneck pace. And so I kind of, I like I, I like that. You know, if you're going to go on the road and, and win two games out of three, you, you probably, you earned it. You know, it, you feel like you earned it a little more than just winning one, which I guess is, is pretty obvious. So, so, you know, the Padres knock out the Mets and the Phillies knock out St. Louis and, and Seattle knocks out Toronto. And you feel like, okay, you know, and, and I thought it was cool this year, Jay, that, that every team in the tournament got a home game, except for Tampa Bay, who doesn't draw great anyway. You know, every team ended up hosting, which doesn't always happen. So it right. would have been really a shame if one of those teams, uh, Phillies or Seattle, for example, you know, like finally get into the playoffs and then don't even get one game at home. You know, the Mariners yeah. at least had one game which felt like two because it was 18 innings. <laughs> and it, yeah. it's, it's fun. I mean, it's 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 neat, I think, that we ha- have on the AL side, we have the best team in the American League, clearly, miles ahead of any other team. And the NL side, we had chaos. We had all the 100-win 100 team, teams losing pretty early, and you had the five and six seeds pl- duking it out. And, you know, they're not traditional underdogs, San Diego and Philly, because they spend a ton of money and they have star power. But, you know, they didn't, they were a little bit of a, a, a rocky road during the season. Didn't go as smoothly as you thought. But in the end, they were the last two teams standing in the NL and, and, and their vision panned out. It just didn't pan out during the six months. It took that seven months for it to work. And here we have the Phillies, you know, and, and Philadelphia. I'm biased because it's my hometown, but it's, it's a tremendous atmosphere for big games. The fans really make it their personal mission to, to you know, to have <laughs> have some kind of impact on, on, on the right. game. And, and and I don't think home field advantage tends to matter a whole lot ever in baseball. It just doesn't usually play out that way. But there's sometimes it, it matters when it does matter, you know. And, and the Phillies have won, I think, two-thirds of their home games at Citizen Bank Park in the postseason, 21 out of 30, I think. So it's wow. like there might be something to it in Philadelphia at least. Yeah. 
Yeah, this is maybe maybe it's a little, a little bit of a, a, a sample size issue, but you know, yeah, nonetheless, yeah. you turn on you turn on the TV, you know you're in Philly. Those fans are crazy, right? And uh, yeah, it and, uh, and it probably is a sample size issue, right? Because yeah. I mean, I, in '83 they lost '83 they lost all three, and then in '93 they lost the first two. So, and I've witnessed all of those, you know, most of those games. So, uh-huh. uh, but yeah, maybe it's a little different in Citizens Bank. I don't know. It seems like it's uh, more of a party atmosphere there than it was the vet. Yeah, well, certainly, you know, that, that series, I, I, I joked about, I joked about this when I was, when I was covering the, um, the ALCS, but it, it felt to me like the batting average on balls in play in the ALCS was about 083 and the batting average on balls in play in the NLCS was about 500. <laughs> that's a great, that's a great, uh, observation <laughs> because it really felt, you know, I got a weird tweet from someone who, who said like, yeah, after Game Four, was complaining about all the strikeouts. I'm like, actually, Game Four was pretty awesome. Like, like there was a lot of balls in play. You know, there was there was a lot of a lot of stuff going on all game long. It was a really, it was one of those games. I don't even know how long it was because it didn't feel that way. It it, it felt it felt like constant action. You're right, and put you know that maybe there weren't stolen bases like in the '80s, but there was a there was a good mix of of power ball and sort of these weird rallies that would that would pop up. So. Yeah, the NL series had it going on. It, it had five games that were all really good games. Yeah, and I wish I'd I got. I feel some like, of it. yeah, I feel like I, if you were. You say you were there at the AL series. The AL yeah, series. Yeah, so like I was watching done. a lot of that on like you know my neighbor's iPad or whatever while I was trying to write up a gamer or something like that. Yeah. It's like yeah, you just can't capture it like that, and it's tough. It just seemed like a dud that that AL series. I mean, it yeah. just it felt like you know I I did the first Yankees game against Cleveland, and that was good. That was a that was a nice night, and the Yankees won pretty handily, and and you know. There we go. But it seemed like the rest of the postseason for the Yankees was just dreary. I mean, between the weather and yeah. the late games, the blown leads, the shortstop uh, merry-go-round, the, the injuries, uh, it was just felt like not being there on site, but it felt very uncomfortable all the way through. And that once they got to Houston with no off days and the Astros were all rested, it just didn't feel like it was a, it was a fair fight. Houston just seemed so so much better. Yeah, it was it was dreary to cover. It really was, yeah. and, and waiting out. You know, I waited delays, out being delays, right. and, yeah. and, and uh, you know, I actually didn't didn't even go for Game Four because I had a previous plans, um, and I'm, I'm not really that sorry I missed it because I've 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 covered Yankee eliminations before, and it's 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 nothing fun just just being in that atmosphere. You know, whether whether you have a dog in the hunt or not, you're around a lot of very sad and frustrated people if you have to go into that locker room or listen to listen to the manager, listen to the players talk about how they didn't get it done. So, yeah. You're lucky if you were spared that, but I know you, but I know you've you've been around enough of those uh Yeah. Yeah, uh, I did. I did eight, in recent years. 8 years on the Yankee beat and, and uh you know, one year they didn't make it, but three years in a row they lost in the in the first round. So, yeah. you know, I in uh, whatever that was, oh five, oh six, oh seven. So you know, I had a lot of those years where they're just, how could this happen? We're so good. How could this happen? Right. We lose to Detroit or Cleveland. It's like, well, you know, they're they're not bad either. <laughs> yeah, short short series baseball, man. Uh, yep. So, what are you looking forward to most about this matchup here? I always I like to look for things I've never seen before. We've seen a lot of Houston, but I haven't. You know, we haven't seen Houston win since seventeen, and now we know historically that that one was. So, you know, looked at askew. Sure. So tainted, it, tainted. Yeah. So it, I feel like either outcome was going to be pretty cool. I mean, you know, when Philadelphia wins, part of me, you know, from knowing so many people in the organization and people who care about the Phillies, you know, that that that's always kind of neat to see. And plus, they haven't, you know, they haven't won in a while. And Houston winning would be a good story too, because because it really would serve as a kind of, I think, 
vindication, coronation, whatever, that they are the team of this era. And you never like to see someone be like thought of for getting to the big series and not winning like the Braves, you know, because the Braves right. were, were really great for a long time. Well, like the like the Dodgers were until they won in uh, 2020. In 20, as, yeah. As well. so, yeah. So, you know, I'm looking for I'm looking for I, I, I'm really eager to see what Bryce does. You know, I right. think I think he's the, the man right now um, on, on that run. I'd like to see Verlander win a, a series game or at least, you know, have a Verlander type performance, win or lose. So, yeah, you know, I, I just I get revved up for all these games, man. I just I hope it's a, I hope it's a good series. I hope it lasts a while. And um, it's going to it's, it's going to be crazy there in Philly. I mean, you know, I, <laughs> honestly, honestly, what I'm most excited about is is if uh, these ticket requests come through, if, if if my son gets a chance to come down and see it because he's a college oh, nice. now. And and it, it really lines up with my own personal history, which is I saw them. I saw the Phillies in the World Series when I was very young. And I didn't see them again until I was in college in the World Series. And he's the same way. He saw them in 08 when he was barely old enough to remember. He got to one of those games. And um, now he's going to hopefully get to go to one when he's in college and come down for that. And, you know, that's the good stuff. All right. Awesome. All right, Tyler. Well, thanks so much for for, uh, joining us here and talking about your book and sharing some thoughts about the upcoming World Series. Anything else you want to add here before we go? No, just uh, you know, appreciate you having me on, and yeah, it's it's. I, I think people will will like the book in the spirit of um, of the way you described it, which is really just you know the way a sports fan thinks or talks. You know, you kind of go from one idea to another, and oh, this reminds me of that, and 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 so that's kind of what I tried to capture, and, and uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it, just like I've enjoyed your work too. So thanks for having me on. All right, sure thing, Tyler. For FanGraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest on this segment is Justin Henry Malloy, a prospect in the Atlanta Braves system and uh, currently playing for the Scottsdale Scorpions in the Arizona Fall League. Justin, uh, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thank you for having me. I really appreciate you. Yeah, we actually had a pretty good talk in Arizona, I know, close to a week ago already. I'm back in Cambridge, Mass now, but I was in Arizona. I love the Fall League. I know a lot about the players. I know a lot about the ballparks. One thing I don't know much about, Justin, is really what the lifestyle is like to actually be a player in the Fall League. So why don't you tell us about that? I guess I would just say, from my experience, the lifestyle is pretty... uh pretty close to the regular season. I guess going about my day to day, it's, you know, your normal wake up at 10 if the game is at 635. So here the games are at 635 or they're at 1235. So, um, you know, your 635 game, you're waking up at 10, making my breakfast, I'm getting to the field early and everything's pretty much the same. I try to keep it the same just to uh, keep my routine and to be able to go about my day to day the same as the regular season. The cool part about the fall league is that we kind of get treated like rock stars, which is pretty awesome. But I mean, just trying to keep the day to day as similar as the regular season. Obviously, in the regular season, we don't have as many 1235s at all. So those early wake ups are a little bit tough sometimes. But at the same time, like, it's pretty awesome being out here just enjoying my time. And you know, I made some really good friends while I've been here for, you know, it's only been three weeks. So just been a blast so far. And you are a rock star, though, Justin. I know that your teammates there call you Jayhan, which is very much a rock star name. So, hey, you should be treated like a rock star. I think we all should. You know, obviously, there's a lot more work to be done. But I mean, you know, at, at the end of the day, like it took a lot of work to get out here. And, and everyone out here 
is an elite caliber type of player. So, you know, just being able to be out here and to be able to watch other guys and other organizations go about their business, it's pretty special. And you're able to learn and bounce ideas off each other. And, you know, it's kind of cool just, you know, thinking that like, hey, like I'm among some of the best of the best. And, and that's a credit to them. And it's also a credit to myself. So I'm happy where I am. And, and it's just humbling to be out here. Seriously. And you told me that your roommate there in the Arizona Fall League is Cade Bunnell, who you actually played with in AA this year for a while. How bad of a Sunday did he, did Cade have? A Sunday? <laughs> no, Cade, Cade, like myself, is a Green Bay Packer fan, and they had a really bad loss. So I'm kind of wondering if he was moping around the, uh, the apartment all day. Oh, God. Honestly, Sunday he was with his parents, so he wasn't really with us. But I know that guy's a die-hard Wisconsin guy. So anything Brewer, I mean, obviously not Brewers, but like he's, you know, obviously he grew up a Brewer fan. And then big Giannis guy, loves him. And, uh, you know, the Packers. So I obviously didn't see him, but I, I could tell he's probably devastated. No, I'm sure he had had a bad day, you know, in, in that respect anyway. But one way in which he does not have bad days is I learned actually speaking to you what a great story Cade is, is that he's actually a 40th round pick. I think he was drafted like, oh, like 1,000 something in, in 2019. And the dude hit like 300 in double A this year. So, you know, tell me about that. No, Cade is a special talent, like kind of like how I was telling you before. He's my pick to be the last 40th round pick to be in the big leagues, or at least one of them for sure. I mean, just a special guy. Like, I mean, just as consistent and steady Eddie as you can be, you can put him at any position in the infield. He's going to make every single play and he's going to make the above average plays too. You put him anywhere in the lineup. I mean, put him in the heart of the order at the top. At the, it doesn't even matter. Booney's just a baseball player. And that's one thing that like, I just kind of admire about other guys like, you know, obviously, like, I respect everyone who has the crazy tools, right? Everyone does. But, like, in my opinion, like, I just love guys who are baseball players, who, who know how to just play the game. They got some savvy to them. And I think Booney's one of those guys for sure. So, I mean, his story is just incredible. Being a 40th round pick and being as good as he is, it's just shocking. But it's actually not shocking at all with the work that he puts in on a day-to-day -day and how he goes about his business. And you, Justin, were a six-round pick. You were a third baseman. You are not an outfielder. And at the risk of uh, sounding too negative early here in the, in the pod, I was at the game. It was actually the day that we spoke. We talked about your transition and advice you got in learning to play the outfield, you know, midseason, how to deal with the sun. And man, you had a rough day in that Arizona sun that one day. You, you almost got hit in the head by a fly ball. That might have been the toughest outfield day that I ever had. I mean, obviously, like, still new out here, but, you know, it's kind of funny. Our outfield coordinator with the Braves, Goody, he was there, and it's like, I go up to him, like, yo, what do I do? And he's just like, yo, no one's ever defeated the Sun before, bro. Like, there's nothing you really can do. So, you know, obviously, just battling with it, that's really all that, you know, I was told to do. There's not really much when you get a ball into the Sun directly into it. So, you know, you just got to battle, just kind of, you know, be as close as you can to the ball. So when it drops, you're able to go get it. But yeah, no, that day was really tough, but it was a learning experience. You know, obviously I was really, I was pretty mad about it, but, you know, now looking back, it's a learning experience. Hopefully I never have to experience that again, but we're still out here in Arizona and these skies are deep and the sun is bright. So we'll, uh, we'll battle when we need to, if it's out there. 
the first one, as I mentioned, almost hit you hit you in the head. The second one you had to run for, I could tell you weren't seeing it. Well, it wasn't an easy play. The third one would have been actually a really nice play without the sun. You were diving right in the left field corner. But after that whole sequence over a few innings, like what is going through your mind standing in, in left field? I mean, to be completely honest, in that situation, you're kind of, I mean, for the sake of our guys on the mound who are giving up, you know, cheap hits and cheap triples, in that situation, you're kind of like, hit the ball anywhere else but left field. Obviously, I can't really control that, but in that situation, you just kind of feel helpless. And But at the same time, it's like, you just got to compete with the ball in the sun. No one's, again, like no one's ever defeated the sun before. But, you know, just compete with the ball. Ball goes up in the air. You got to do the best you can to just, you know, try and catch it, shield off the sun try and angle the ball. That's probably the best thing that you can do. And if it doesn't work out, you know, there've been billions of people here and no one could stare at the sun for more than X amount of seconds. So it was what it was. I just kind of felt bad for our guys who were pitching where it's just like, you know, those are considered hits when they really aren't hits, they're outs. So, you know, I want to take accountability on myself. Like, you know, I don't care if the ball's in the sun. You know, defeat the sun, catch the ball, do something, you know, but it sucks. That situation sucked. But again, like it's a learning experience and just got to get after it. That's about it. And you certainly helped your teams a lot this year. You climbed all the way to triple A, which for a 2021 draft pick, which that's pretty remarkable. Just tell us about your season. My season. I mean, I just, you know, started off in Rome. Just kind of wanted to be consistent. I think that's pretty much the most important thing that you can be. I think if you want to be a big leaguer, you better be consistent. And I think your organization needs to know, like, what is this guy going to be on an everyday basis? You know, not, you know, how's he going to be when he's really good and then he's going to be really bad. I think there's a lot of pride and consistency, you know. So I think, you know, being in Rome, just sticking to a routine and being really, you know, into that routine and being strict about it. And then I was having a good time in Rome with the guys there. And then, I got the news that I was going to head up to double A with the position change. And that was, you know, I took it head on. Like I seriously was excited about it. I just wanted to go out there really and just play winning baseball. And if winning baseball was me going out to left field and moving up a level, let's do it. You know, just kind of, you know, take on the learning experience and, and, you know, the, the little bumps in the road that are going to happen, you know, being in a new position, but then it was, it was double A and after double a i was actually scheduled to go home for a week before heading out to the fall league and the last week probably that wednesday of the last week i was told by our manager that i'm not going home and that i'm going to go up to triple a so i joined the team in memphis after the double a season and i got to really learn from everybody you know seriously everybody but like going up to triple a and seeing those guys who you know i was i literally watched on tv as a kid you know, so your Marisnik's, your Delano De Shields, Hernan Perez, like I mean, all those guys. I'm I'm missing guys, but like just being able to watch those guys go about their business and how they handle their day to day. It was just you know being able to learn and be a sponge and you know be able to take that into my game and and you know enhance my game by watching them. And you had 17 bombs this year. I don't have it in front of me. I think you hit somewhere on the season, somewhere maybe in the 280s, 290. But I recall looking at your on-base percentage and thinking, man, dude, this guy gets on. It was it was four something, 408 maybe. Are you a patient hitter? I mean, I guess to dissect myself as a hitter, 
I wouldn't say I'm patient. Now, can I get too patient at times? Yes. But the one thing that I take pride in is commanding the zone. I think we kind of talked about it before when you were here. I'm not a guy like in BP where, you know, I'm trying to put on a show. Like, that's not my game. Like, my BP is pretty boring. I think good hitters are boring. But the way that I'm able to do damage, and I'm, you know, obviously I'm satisfied with 17 homers, whatever, you know, who cares? But the way that I'm able to do damage is put myself into damage counts. And if I'm able to swing at the pitches that I need to and to take the pitches that I need to, you know, for balls to put myself into plus counts, that's where I'm going to be able to do my damage. So getting on base, obviously, it's going to come at the cost of if he's not throwing strikes, then I'm going to walk. So just taking what the game gives me and, and not trying to do too much is, is really that happy balance that, of what I'm really trying to do. And we mentioned uh, the multiple levels this year that, that you played in, of course. Von Grissom played at multiple levels, including the big leagues at, at a young age. I was looking at, at numbers here, and in a similar number of plate appearances with the high A Rome Braves, I'll look at it right here. Von Grissom, 891 OPS. Justin Henry Malloy, 889 OPS. That's pretty cool, man. <laughs> pretty funny, just because Vaughn and I are like, we're like, I'd say we're super competitors. So like when you say that he was that 891, and then I was that 889, I'm like, dang, like he beat me by two. But it's such a healthy like competition. There's guys like Cody and Javi, Cody Milligan, Javi Valdez that are like the same exact way, like super competitive. And we chirp at each other about numbers. And it, it, it's funny. It's all in great fun because we're all like we're all best friends, which is pretty awesome. But Vaughn completely deserved everything that he got this year. And I mean, you look at him, he was so built for the moment that it's almost unreal but it's also not surprising whatsoever. Yeah, tell us something about Von Grissom, you know, the, the person, because most fans listening to this see the numbers, they watch him on TV, but what type of dude is he? A great human. I think that's probably the best way to put Grizz. Just a good human, a good dude. He cares about other guys. He wants others to get better around him. Again, like, you know, minus him being Vaughn Grissom, the baseball player, which everyone knows, like you said, Vaughn Grissom, the baseball player. There's a reason why I feel like, and I have no idea, right? But they're not going to call up someone who's that young and that good to be around guys who are up there for him to be a bad guy. And I think for our organization to call him up that early, it speaks to the Vaughn Grissom, the person, maybe even more than Vaughn Grissom, who's on the field. Because they know he's able to handle that because he's a good guy. He's not, I mean, yeah, sure, like, he's 21, like, I'm 22. Like, we're all immature in some ways. But Von Grissom, the person, is a mature dude. He goes about his business the same way how any other big leaguer would go about his business. And that's why he was able to go up there so fast. He's really good. He's a great dude. And he's very mature when it comes to baseball. He knows about the game. I mean, I can go on and on about Grizz because he became one of my really good friends. But I mean, that's a guy that any player just wants to be around. And I think that speaks volumes. How about Mr. Michael Harris? I actually, I hung out with Mike a few times in spring training. Obviously, we never crossed paths, right? Like he started the season in double A, I started in high A. And by the time I got to double A, he was already in the big league. So we never crossed paths like that. But from everything that I saw while speaking to him and hanging out with him, 
And from what I've heard from other people, that's just another guy who's a great dude. And like, you could even see it on TV and how that locker room in the big leagues, like they love Mike, like everyone loves Mike, everyone loves Vaughn. And there's a reason why they're up there and they're so good and they're enjoying their time and other people love them around them. And I think that that's just, you know, the most important thing is just being a good human. And those guys are great. Let's jump, Justin, to new friends. You're playing on a Scottsdale team where I assume you did not know really any of these players or not many. Who are you hanging with? Oh, man, it's uh, it's kind of tough in our situation just because we don't have any cars to kind of maneuver around. So we just kind of like the, all the Braves guys like from our apartment. We're, uh, we're Ubering back and forth to the field. But I mean, the guys that we've gotten close with, there's just so many. I mean, Nick York, I, I mean, the list could go on. Nick York, Nico Cavadas, Heston Kerstead, Reed Trimble, Kyler Paris. I mean, good grief. Warner Blakely. I mean, we all get along so well. And I know I'm definitely missing some guys on that list, but it's pretty much everyone. And we glued together so fast. It was pretty remarkable to see. And, you know, how close we are. And like I said, like earlier in this segment, like it's been three weeks and it feels like I've been playing with some of these guys all year. And some of them I have been playing against all year, but just pretty cool, like being able to see like how fast guys can gel together over the game of baseball. And it's funny because I think that every player you just mentioned, I talked to while I was in Arizona. So I guess we can consider this a program note to listeners that we'll read about all of these guys, you know, very soon. Justin, we're running short on time. I want to ask you, you mentioned BP earlier about, you know, boring. Who has the best BP power on the Scottsdale team? Because power is not boring. And I'm sure some of the guys would show off once in a while. Heston, period. Hands down, Heston. Heston puts on an absolute display. I'll be in the outfield and I'm just like trying to get my outfield work, but I mean, I can't really get much outfield work when balls are going over the wall. And it's at the same time, he's not even trying to like, he's not trying to hit home runs in BP, I feel like. Now, again, I don't, I'm not in Heston's head, but I mean, it's just like he, he could clip balls that he doesn't get well and they're still homers. Like that's just a strong human. So, you know, credit to him and, and, and what he does, but he's special. No, that's pretty cool to hear. One of your teammates there in the Brave system, I saw go deep in a game this past week. He's not really a big dude. Conley, I believe. I'm spacing on Conley's first name. Cal. Cal Conley. Yeah, tell me about him because he looks like he's sort of a stocky guy, but not a big guy. Cal's a baseball player. I mean, I think he's just a great mix of a guy. Like, obviously, like... You know, like you said, like he's not, you know, the biggest guy. But I mean, like the way he hits, he hits like a big dude. And on top of that, he's going to swipe you bases and he's going to lay out, get dirty in the infield. and He's going to make your above average play. So Cal Conley is just a dude. I call him just a baseball player. And I think we kind of talked about it before I pointed him out. But I mean, that's a guy that you want on your team, right? I, I, I love baseball players. I love guys who are gritty, who are going to grind at bats. And I know every night, you know, every Five times a night, Cal's going to go out there and he's going to give our team a chance to win. And I think that's the best representation of a good baseball player. Yeah, a couple more quick things before I let you go, Justin. A question that I've asked a lot of uh, players, minor league players over the course of the season is, and this doesn't ha really have to be an Arizona Fall League question, it can be a regular season question as well. Which pitcher have you faced that you walked away from the dish thinking, man, this guy is really nasty? I'm sure there's more than one. I try not to give those guys too much credit, even though they're 
as disgusting as it is. I mean, to be honest, like I really don't even know names like that. I'll be completely honest with you. I don't really know any of their names. I just kind of, you know, they're kind of gross in my bad. I just walk away and I'm like, all right, well, that righty got me or that lefty got me. I don't really know many names. So I'd be a tough guy to ask that question. No, fair enough. How about this? You're new to all of these ballparks that you're playing in, you know, given that the Braves train in, in Florida in the spring. What's your favorite AFL ballpark? Favorite AFL ballpark has to be Salt River, for sure. Actually, I mean, cool story. I actually began my collegiate career. My first ever collegiate game, my first ever collegiate hit was at Salt River. So um, going back there brings up memories from, you know, when I was in 18-year-old freshman at Vandy and you know the place looks exactly the same it's a gorgeous stadium with just a it's just pretty to play there but I would definitely say Salt River is is the best field that we play on no cool and uh, I had forgotten about about the Vandy thing I know that you were drafted out of Georgia Tech so if you were at Vandy did you, were you actually on a national championship team there correct Wow, that's cool. Well, I have two rings. I have our SEC ring and I have our national championship ring. So so I would guess that one of your big goals in life is to add an Atlanta Braves World Series ring. I mean, not looking too far in front of myself, but, you know, obviously, you know, as, as a kid, you dream about, you know, being a big leaguer and, and winning in the big league. So Obviously, that'd be pretty cool to add to to a real small collection. But again, I I really try not to think too far ahead of myself. You know, I preach a lot and I say a lot about being where where my feet are. So I feel like thinking too far ahead is 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 too much for me right now. But again, like obviously, as my inner child is, you know, obviously I want a World Series. So, but again, not looking too far ahead. I think, Justin, that a lot of us are guilty of not paying enough attention to our inner child. I think our inner children uh, are, are very wise. So, <laughs> Hey, with that, I think we're running over time. So I guess I will thank you for coming on to Fangrass Audio. Thank you guys so much for having me. I really appreciate you all. Thank you. Okay. And thanks, everybody, for listening to Fangrass Audio. This has been Fangraphs Audio. Thank you to Tyler and Jayhen for joining us, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the program, consider sharing it with a friend or two. It helps us out. After you've checked out the Fangraphs store, don't forget to download the Fangraphs app. Free on the Apple Store and Google Play, it's Fangraphs tailored for on-the-go, so you can check those sweet, sweet advanced stats while watching the game. And don't forget to sign up for the Fangraphs newsletter. Free to your inbox, it's the best way to keep up on all the cool stuff we have going on, which is a lot. That'll do it for us this week. Happy World Series. Let's hope for seven games, huh? Enjoy the Fall Classic, and we'll talk to you next time.